Father, speak to us this morning. Take your holy and precious word, the word that is never changing, the word that is all-powerful, the word that is greater than bread and sustaining our life, and use it, Father, this morning as only you can, speaking individually to each of our hearts. On the page before me, Father, are notes that I've prepared that have the things I have uh, taken to heart as I have studied your word and I have prepared to deliver as I saw the leading of the Spirit. And yet, Father, I know that you are the teacher through your Spirit. Each person here, Father, will hear from you as I speak. The words that I use may not be the ones that they hear, for you will be the one speaking into their hearts. And so we ask, Father, now that the clarity that only you can provide would be evident. Our ears would open and hear. Our hearts would receive and respond. And that your body would be edified and your name glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember back in chapter 15, we looked at the moment, we witnessed the moment when the Lord took it upon himself to enter into a covenant with Abram. This covenant of promise that God has been explaining to Abram here now over a series of weeks in the study we've been doing. In that ceremony, though, in chapter 15, the Lord appeared in the form of a fire and a pillar of cloud. And while Abram was in that deep sleep, there was that moment of agreement, that formal ritual moment in which the covenant was inaugurated. But remember, only God acted. God alone did the movement through those pieces of meat, through the animal carcasses. And as he did that, he bound himself to the vows he had been making to Abram. All of what God had promised Abram, all the way back to chapter 12, the sum of those promises were being inaugurated through that formal covenant in chapter 15. To make Abram a great nation, to make him a great people, to grant countless number of descendants, to give him an inheritance in the land, and to bless those who bless him while cursing his enemies. Those were the, the, the basics of this covenant that God entered into. Those promises, the sum total were affirmed in chapter 15. And they were affirmed in that special ritual in which only God acted, which indicated to us that this was a one-way covenant. Or the fancy term, the theological term, was a suzerainty covenant, a covenant that is from the greater party granted to the lesser party. That one-way nature of the covenant meant that Abram need do nothing more to maintain those promises than he had to do in the first place to receive them. They depended entirely on God's faithfulness and his willingness to do as he said. Nothing that Abram could say or do could ever change, much less negate, the promises that God had made through this covenant. And the fact that it was one way was represented in the way God himself walked through, but Abram did not. The reason God makes one-way covenants is because they reflect glory upon him and not upon the other party. For the faithfulness of God is the only determiner for such a covenant. Now, as we leave chapter 15 and we come into chapter 16, we've witnessed in the first half of this chapter a great sin on the part of Abram and his wife, Sarai, an unwillingness to wait on God, an unwillingness to depend on his promises. Sarai, if you remember, she was unwilling to wait. That was her sin. She didn't want to wait on God for the son that she has heard is coming. And Abram, for his part, his sin was a sin of an unwillingness to act in correcting and counseling his wife when she brought this idea to him. So they both sinned from different perspectives, and the end result of that sin is profound because both in the immediate moment and then in later generations over the course of millennia, this sin will play out. 
in the lives of millions and millions of people. The second half of the chapter 16, the second half of our chapter today, examines those consequences. What happens when two people called into a covenant in a one-way suzerainty covenant sin? Well, as you might know from what I've already said, the result is consequences for them, but yet still faithfulness from God. When we ended last week, Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar, had become pregnant with Abram's first son. And at the confirmation of that pregnancy, there was this new dangerous dynamic in the family because a slave now had the upper hand on her master, on her mistress. The scripture says, as we remember last week, that Hagar showed contempt for Sarai. And Sarai, knowing that Hagar could not be sold, as we reviewed last week, the laws of the time did not permit a slave that had been given into marriage to her master's husband to be sold at any point after that. She was now to be a permanent part of the family as far as the law was concerned. That left Sarai at loss to to know what to do. She has a woman who is her slave, but treating her now with contempt. What do you do about that? Well, she protests to her husband. She goes to Abram and she says, you need to fix this. Now, Abram, for his part, as a husband, when his wife comes to him, bringing this concern before him, his failure earlier to give her good guidance and correction and deal with her earlier idea is now compounded by his failure to support her as she brings this problem back and puts it in his lap. His only response for Sarai last week was to state the obvious, your slave is in your control, do what you want. Can you imagine the pain Sarai felt? I mean, think about it from a woman's point of view, as as only a man can, of course. Think about what must have been going on in her mind. She thought she was doing the right thing, I think, I believe. She thought she was doing the right thing earlier when she brought her husband her maid. She was sacrificing her own position as the single sole wife of Abram. She was willingly giving up that position of honor to bring another woman into the relationship between herself and her husband. And she did that because she wanted desperately to do what every woman, at least in that culture, wanted to do. Give her husband the child he wanted. And she couldn't do it. For a decade, she hadn't been able to do it. And so, she decides this is the only solution she has. It was a faithless move. It was an impetuous, impatient move on Sarai's part. But it had, perhaps behind it, a good heart. Now, in recognizing her mistake, seeing the consequences of it, she goes to her husband once again, this time for his help. And Abram throws it back in her face. So left with no other option, what does Sarai do? Well, she takes what her husband's given her, and she does what she wants. She treats Hagar harshly, we read last week, and though the scripture doesn't say it outright, it's probably easy to guess that she did so with the intent of driving Hagar away, doing something to make this woman not want to stick around anymore. And in verse 16, we were told last week, Hagar, in fact, flees from Sarai. Now, As we move back into the text this morning, I want you to think about how much of a disaster this entire episode has been for everyone. Abram, he lost a servant in his home, one of his servants, his wife's chief servant. Sarai, she lost her handmaiden, which would have been a very big impact on her life. Hagar, of course, has lost a home and now is on the run in the middle of a pregnancy in the wilderness. By the way, Hagar's flight here, it amounts to two crimes on her part. She is now committing theft and she's committing kidnapping. Because 
she, as a runaway slave, is the property of Abram. She's taking herself away from Abram. That's stealing, if you will. She's removing herself from the household and therefore taking something from Abram. And then, of course, taking her unborn child. That child doesn't belong to her legally. It belongs to Sarai and Abram. And she's removing the child from the home. So she's committing kidnapping, effectively, by leaving the house. And at this moment, the Lord steps in. So we pick up in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. For the first time in Scripture, we're introduced to someone here that we need to understand who we're looking at clearly. We're introduced to the angel of the Lord. Now, that term is important in Scripture. It's an important character, particularly in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this occurs 58 times, this reference to the angel of the Lord. And despite the fact that the word angel is used, malach in Hebrew, this is no ordinary angel. The word angel literally is just the word for messenger or ambassador in Hebrew. And when that word, though, is combined with the proper name for God, which is Yahweh, it always refers to the second person of the Godhead. In this case, we're talking about the person who eventually is revealed to us as the incarnate Jesus. Though at this moment, the second person is yet to be incarnate, so he is yet to become the one we will later know him to be. So prior to his incarnation, prior to the moment when God became man, born of the Virgin Mary, he existed with the Father as he has always existed, as the second person, but he acted in creation as God's messenger, as an ambassador of the Father, called here the angel of the Lord. Now, we know that this is a term for the second person of the Godhead by looking at the context in which this term always appears. In every context, and there's 58, as I mentioned, in every context in which this term appears in Scripture, there is also, in that same context, a reference to God when speaking about this same individual. You can see that in our context here, even just jumping ahead for a moment, look at verse 13. In verse 13, Hagar speaking to this individual, this person called the angel of the Lord, look what she calls him, God. God himself. So in that moment, she recognized that she was not looking at some ordinary angel. She recognized that this messenger, this ambassador, was God himself. That's how we come to know that this term is a reference to the second person of the Godhead and not merely to some angel. You'll see, by the way, if you study further through the Old Testament, you'll see most notably the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. You'll see the angel of the Lord on the mountain delivering the law to Moses. You'll see the angel of the Lord leading Israel through the desert. These are evidences of God at work through the second person of the Godhead even before he is incarnate. That is why Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians that the creation is by, for, and through Christ. When the Lord here, therefore, appears before Hagar, and that's how I will reference this, this character throughout the rest of this account, as God, for that is who it is, when the Lord then appears here before Hagar, he finds her, we're told, by a spring of water in the desert on a road leading to Shur. Shur is a wilderness area. Some of your Bibles may have maps. You may have it marked. It borders the Negev, which itself is on the road into Egypt. So when we hear that she's at this place, sure, what the scripture is telling us is she's likely headed to Egypt. She's on her way south into Egypt. 
from where she has been before. Now, that makes perfect sense, right? She's Egyptian. Having been taken out of her own country, plopped down in Canaan as a slave to Abram when Abram and Sarai left Egypt, now she's run from that home. Where else is she going to go? She's going to go back to her homeland. She's going to go back south to Egypt. Since she's moving through a desert, though, water is a particularly important consideration. And she apparently has paused here because she's come to a spring. And that's a, a good thing when you're walking through the desert. And she's stopped long enough to refresh herself. And it's here that we hear that the Lord has appeared to her by this spring. And he asked her two questions. The Lord says, where have you come from? Where are you going? Now here we find another example of how God asks questions and yet we know he knows the answers. In fact, there is no question you could ask that God doesn't already know the answer to. So what is he trying to achieve in this moment by asking questions when we know he knows the answers? He wants to trigger in the mind of the person he's talking to new thinking and new understanding. And sometimes the best way to trigger that new thought in someone's head is to ask the probing question that leads them to the answer you want them to come to. He wants Hagar, in this case, to think twice about what she's doing. He begins by saying, Hagar, Sarah's maid, Sarah's maiden. Did you notice he used that in identifying her right up front? The Hebrew word there for maid is literally slave girl. So the Lord plainly calls her out in the very beginning of this conversation and says, Hey, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Which is a way of reminding her, whose property are you? Where is your home? He's reminding her right from the start. You don't have the right to run away. You're a slave to Sarai. And where are you going to? Now, she may be headed south toward Egypt, but I'm betting she doesn't know her final destination. I mean, what's she going to return to? She was sold out of Egypt into slavery. Who is, who's going to receive her back? It was simply fleeing here, as her name implies, by the way. Remember, Hagar means to flee. She's just fleeing. She's just running. And then Hagar, for her part, she answers very plainly, and I think this is a, a good thing to see, very transparently. She says, yeah, I'm, I'm running from my master. I'm running from Sarai. She makes no attempt to deny the truth. Hagar here is a victim, and we see that right from the start. She's been a victim from the beginning of this episode. She was pressed into slavery to support Abram's fleeing from Egypt, then pressed again into marrying Abram and becoming his wife. I'm sure she had no options when that was proposed. And then she was hated by her own mistress because she did what she was asked to do. That led to her harsh treatment. And now she's fleeing as a result. But add to that the fact that she does not know the living God. There's no evidence in Scripture from her having come out of Egypt that she's ever been exposed to anything to do with the true living God. It's a safe assumption, at least up to this moment, that she is a pagan, unbelieving woman. She also, by the way, had no insight to the promises God has given to Abram and Sarai. She would not have known about the covenant. She wouldn't have been able to appreciate all that God has spoken to these two people. So she is without any insight without any of those benefits, plus she has been treated as the victim from the start. She was a Gentile suffering under the sin of Hebrew masters. But now she's committing this sin. This is now her sin. Her sin is to flee. And so God steps in and turns her around on this point of sin. Verse 9, the Lord says to her, Return to your owner and submit to her authority. Now does that 
commandments surprise you? In light of the fact that she's the victim, that she's had none of the insight that they've had about how to behave properly, how to anticipate God at work. She's blind to all of that. She does what she thinks she has to do. She flees from a tyrannical mistress, and yet God appears to her and says, go back and submit. Well, let me ask you this. What other advice would you have a perfect, holy God give to someone who's engaging in sin? Because under the laws of the day, fleeing from Abram and his household was breaking the law and depriving Abram of his child. What advice would you think a holy and perfect God would give under those circumstances? Do you think he would say, you know what? You've been mistreated. It really isn't your fault. You can go ahead and go. How could God approve of her behavior? He couldn't. It mattered not the reason for her sin. She was sinning. And two wrongs, as they say, don't make a right. The Lord here needed Hagar to stay with Abram because it suited his purpose for Abram and Sarai that she would do so. Now, you may know, if you've studied Genesis or if you've studied the story of Abram in some other place already, you would know that Abram and Sarai are going to receive instructions from God in a later time to send Hagar and her son out of the house. That's going to happen at some point. But for now, God wants Hagar to remain in the household until that future moment. Now, you might say, well, why does it matter to God that she go back and submit now when he's only going to turn around later and tell Sarai and Abram they have to kick her out? Well, there are two reasons for this delayed departure. First, God wants Hagar's departure to happen in such a way that it will teach a lesson, not only to Abram and Sarai, but to all generations of Israel later, and to you and I, for that matter, as we study this Bible today. So when the departure happens, it needs to happen a certain way so that the right lesson is taught. Hagar and her son will form an important picture for God in telling a story of Israel. We'll come to this when we see the actual departure later in the book of Genesis. But in Galatians, Paul draws this story out for us and explains it to us so that the picture becomes clear. There will be a seed, and eventually that seed culminates in Christ. And that seed will save men from their sin. But that seed finds its source in God's promises, not in the works of men. And in order to tell that story fully, God needed not only a son of promise by which he can show how God does do what he plans to do, but he also needed a foil. He also needed the contrast so that we would understand it more clearly. And he needed a son by human effort who could show clearly it is not by flesh, it is only by my promise. And so God creates that contrast through a son of the flesh, a son that will come from Hagar, and we'll study more of that contrast in the next chapter when we see that event. That's one reason why there is a delayed departure. God wants the picture to be proper and, and make sense. Secondly, Abram's sin here is going to bring consequences for him and his family, and God is intent on Abram bearing those consequences. That child that is going to come now from Hagar and Abram, he is going to dwell, we're told, near the sons of promise, and God is going to use the descendants of one to chastise the descendants of the other. The offspring of Hagar eventually become enemies of Israel, and God uses them to discipline Israel. Because God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes working things to good means using them to chastise those he loves. Abram's unique position in God's plan for the world 
means that both his faithfulness and his sin carry much greater consequences than perhaps yours or mine do. That's by God's direction. That's by God's planning. You know, when Abram faithfully does as God expects in Genesis 22 and takes Isaac to the mountain and prepares to kill him as God expected, there was great blessing for Israel because of Abram's faithfulness to do as God asked. We'll look at that, of course, when we get there. But if that's how it's going to be, then it also stands to reason that when Abram slips and falls into sin, there will be great consequences as well. You don't get one without the other. Same for any man who is put in a position of strength for God's glory. So when Abram is strong, the world benefits. When he's weak, the world suffers. And all of this is according to God's plan. And so the Lord tells Hagar, return, submit to the authority of Sarai. In other words, do the right thing. And then God proceeds to show her how her obedience will lead to blessing. And that picks up again in verse 10. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. It's an interesting prophecy concerning this coming son. The Lord assures Hagar right up front. He says, your child will yield an uncountable number of descendants. Notice the text says, I will. This is the first indication we have that this is not just an angel. This is the Lord. For an angel himself would never presume to say, I will create in your family an uncountable number of descendants. That's something only God would say. Now that promise sounds awfully similar to one we've already heard him speak to Abram, doesn't it? In fact, it's exactly the same one God made to Abram, concerning the descendants anyway. Why would God give the same promise to Hagar's child that he's already given to Abram concerning the child of promise? Because this child is Abram's child. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul tells us in Romans. Because God promised that Abram's seed would fill the world, so it must be with this child of Hagar. It can be no other way. This child will eventually become the father of all Arab nations. And as a people group, the Arabs are uncountable. We've lost track of that, right? There's no way we could humanly go back and count all the people who have come out of the Arab nations. What an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. Consider what this fact means about the God we serve. God is so faithful. His promises are so sure, not even God himself can ignore them or change them. Not even God. God promised Abram that his seed would be uncountable, and therefore it must be that way. And though God's promise was directed toward a certain son, a man we will soon come to know as Isaac, Nevertheless, it was spoken to Abram. This is a child of Abram. God will have to do as he said he would do concerning Abram's son, even if it's not the son in view. Therefore, God's word will reign true regardless of how many sons Abram has. Now, you start to understand the power of that earlier covenant in chapter 15, when God entered into that one-way covenant. It means something when God makes a promise. It will stand and nothing can change it. Now, your covenant in the new covenant, your, your relationship to God through Christ, is a one-way, suzerainty, 
covenant in the same form of Abram's as Abram's covenant. You did nothing to obtain it. You do nothing to hold on to it. It does not depend on your performance. It is not obtained through your work. It is made sure by God's faithfulness, by His promises, not by anything you do or I do. And when God made that promise or set those promises before us as we entered into faith, He cannot change those promises. He cannot change His word. And He said, among other things, He would never leave us nor forsake us. He said He will go and prepare a place for us. He said He will confess us before His Father who is in heaven because we confessed His name before men. We had faith. He says we will reign with Him in His kingdom when He returns. He said we will receive an inheritance in that kingdom. That's a literal promise. You and I worry today about whether we will have enough to retire on, perhaps. What a silly worry. We worry about where we will live, perhaps, or we worry about whether we will keep our jobs or whether we will have something else we need. None of those things last past our lifetime, and at some point, the whole earth burns up. But what God has promised is that when we enter into the kingdom, having been resurrected, there will be an inheritance. And I believe, based on the the testimony of Scripture, both new and old, that when he talks about an inheritance, it's literal. You'll have a home. You'll have some land in the new kingdom. You'll have the chance to live on that land peacefully. You'll see the fruit of your labors return a blessing. It won't be like farming under the day of the curse like we do today. It won't be a time in which we cannot see the value of our work come back. It will be a time of blessing in that regard. It will be a life lived in a real, tangible way, but in glory, incorruptible in our nature, and with an inheritance secured by God's work, not our own. Those promises, all those ones I mentioned, they cannot be changed. Not by the world, not by you or me, not by God himself. For if any of those things were possible, then here's your moment to see it happen. Here you have a man who has sinned directly against the covenant, trying to get his own son in a new way. And yet God was so faithful to his own promise, he not only returned the slave home, continued forward in his promises to Abram and delivered the child of promise, just as he said, but he also blessed the child of the flesh because he said he would bless those who would come from Abram. We will sin. And we do that even though we know the God we serve desires that we would live a holy and pleasing life. We know what we should do and we don't always do it. That's the nature of our sinful life. But our sin cannot change these promises. We will fail, but God will not. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.38... He says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot name something that doesn't fit into one of those categories. And nothing will separate us from the covenant he has extended to us. Remember, the promises were spoken to Abram. Not to Hagar, to Abram. This son, the one that is coming from Hagar, the one we'll now know as Ishmael, this son is not the one of God's design. And when he gave his promises to Abram, he was not thinking specifically about this son. So therefore, even though Hagar and Ishmael will have an uncountable number of descendants because of the promise, she, Hagar, is not the direct recipient of the other promises. So she is benefiting here by her association 
with Abram. She herself is not receiving those promises. But by association with Abram, as his wife, she is sharing in the part of the promises that relate to the marriage, that is, the childbearing promises. But she, remember, as a slave, has no inheritance. Remember we clarified that last week? She is a concubine. That means she is a slave made a wife of the master. Concubines did not have the same legal standing as a true normal wife. They don't have inheritance, for example, in the property. Because she doesn't have any inheritance in the family, she gains nothing from that side of the promises. She will not receive an inheritance in the land based on on directly the promises of Abram. She is not going to be the nation of Israel, in other words. These are things that were set up for Abram only and for the son of promise. Her family, therefore, has a different fate than Abram's family. She has some things in store for her and her future child. First, she learns it's a son. Now, that's kind of interesting. Today, we have sonograms. For most mothers, it's a foregone conclusion that sooner or later in the course of her pregnancy, you're going to learn what the sex of the child is. Some of us elect not to do that, but it's available for most women these days. In that day... It was a surprise all the way to the end, right? She gets to find out early. The world's first sonogram, right here. God then goes to the next step and says, His name will be Ishmael. Ishmael literally means God hears, a reflection of how God is hearing her affliction here and visited her in this moment. There's a great irony here, actually, in this, in this revelation. God has stepped into this moment and rescued an Egyptian when he hears of her affliction at the hands of Hebrews. Later, God will rescue Hebrews when he hears of their affliction at the hand of Egyptians. Both times, by the way, God hears because he's bound by his word. Here, he's bound to help Hagar because those who bless Abram, he must bless. And she blessed Abram by the giving of this child and by her marriage. He therefore also must bless Israel because he made promises to do the same for them when they were in bondage. By announcing the name of the child here, though, God is also making a very interesting prophetic statement because as a slave mother, Hagar will have no part to play in the naming of this child. When this child actually arrives, she cannot name it. It's not her child. Abram's going to name it, as men did in that time. So the only way this child is going to end up with the name Ishmael is if Abram happens to select that name himself. And she'll have no input. She'll have no way to direct that outcome. So what do you think it's going to mean to her when she hears announced after the birth that Abram has selected the name Ishmael for this child? What do you think is going to run through her mind? Do you think she'll be encouraged to witness God's word coming to reality before her very eyes? Knowing that the only way her master husband would have picked that name would be if God was influencing him to do so. He's so good to show us his faithfulness, even in little ways like that, even in secret ways where she and she alone would have understood that God was at work. The next thing God tells her, though, is quite interesting. He says, this man is going to be a donkey. A donkey can also be called an ass, right? That's a term for the donkey. And we use that word differently today, pejoratively today. But if you could somehow put that outside your mind just for a moment, think about the word strictly as a term for an animal, then the literal Hebrew is he was an ass of a man. But again, in the sense of the animal... That's a proverbial statement in Hebrew. It means that the donkey will reflect both his personality, the man's personality, and his lifestyle. Donkeys were generally wild animals. They roamed through the deserts in wild, unruly packs. And they never stay in one place very long. That's their nature. They're nomadic. 
Ishmael and his descendants, likewise, are nomads, historically. And that continues, by the way, even to today. Recent news in Libya has us watching the falling apart of the Gaddafi's realm in Libya. Here's a man who has long since given up nomadic lifestyles. He's living in palaces. But when he travels, famously, he, he brings a tent. When he came to the United Nations a, a few months or a year back, he famously set up a tent in a park. Because why? Because he wants to show himself as a nomad, though I'm sure he would sleep in the Ritz-Carlton at night. But the point is, he wanted you to think he was nomadic. Why does that even matter? Why does, it, why does he care? Because he needs to portray, for the sake of his reputation back home and among his tribal family, ancestral family, he needs to continue to project what they take pride in, which is they are nomadic. Even to today, that still matters to them. That's the nature of Arab thinking. Arabs generally, historically, have always been nomadic peoples. They are also, in the way of a donkey's personality, they are also stereotypically hot-blooded, rarely given to submit to the authority of non-Arabs. That's been a historical truth going all the way back to the beginning of that people group. Secondly, God said they're going to be a warring people. He says their hands are going to be against their brothers, their brothers' hands against them. In other words, they're going to be aggressors by nature, provoking conflict with their neighbors. That, again, is a consistent picture of the Arab peoples historically. I'm not saying these things would be pejorative against them. You could say similar things about other groups of people in the world. It's just their nature historically, their cultural nature. And it's in keeping with this prophecy that Ishmael and his descendants would be donkeys of people, donkey of a man, a wild donkey, nomadic, warring, confrontational, unruly, independent. These prophecies have proven to be true over the centuries. So why does the Lord determine this kind of future for the descendants of Ishmael, for the Arab peoples, in other words? Why did he set them out to have this future? Well, the answer comes in the last line of verse 12. Ishmael will settle east of all his brothers. Now, by now, you all know the significance of that reference to east, don't you? We've looked at that now so many times already in the book of Genesis. When we see the word east, it is a picture, a symbol of rebellion against God, the unbelieving world. So we know now that he will and his descendants will represent sin and unbelief in the world. Not that all Arabs, of course, are that way individually. We're talking here in a general sense about the people group. But that that is their destiny as a people group in God's plan. And secondly, geographically, Ishmael does actually settle east of the land of Canaan where his brother Isaac settles. While Isaac eventually becomes the nation of Israel in the land, the Arabs of that land settle largely to the east of Israel. If you look at a map today, that's still generally true. Arab peoples have migrated into northern Africa, and that puts them technically to the west of Israel. But that's only a recent migration. Historically, they began in the eastern lands on the other side of Canaan. They will also become a thorn in Israel's side by design, They will become the tool God uses to chastise Israel when he needs to send them a message. Think about the the masterwork God is involved in here. By choosing to act outside God's will, what did Abram do? He set in motion a world of enmity between the seed of flesh, which he created, and the seed of promise, whom God is going to bring. But that's always the pattern. That's always the way it works. When Adam sinned, what did he do? He set in motion a battle between the sons of God and the sons of the enemy. That continues today. 
The struggle between spirit and flesh will continue until God puts an end to the flesh. This is now the child of flesh, whose battle will be against the child of spirit, the child of the promise. Now, why did God intervene to stop Hagar's sin, her sin of flight, of running away? But yet he didn't intervene earlier to stop Abram and Sarai's sin. Why didn't he just stop their sin, and then he wouldn't even have to have been here in this moment stopping Hagar's sin? Well, the answer is because Abram and Sarai, they knew better. They had God's promises. They had the covenant. They understood what to do, and for that matter, what they didn't have to do. They were already in a position to obey, and yet they didn't. When God's people sin, despite having the word of truth, then you face consequences. But Hagar knew none of these things. We've already established that. So now, only now, as God appears and reveals himself, does she understand things that heretofore she did not understand. And by that revelation, God brings her to an understanding which then leads to her obedience. Look at that connection. With God's revelation comes understanding concerning his will, concerning his purposes, and our commandments to act in certain ways, to do what he expects. From that understanding comes an opportunity to obey, to do as we're told. When we don't, he chastises those he loves. He disciplines his children, and so we will see consequences when we don't. But to the one who has no understanding, who does not know, to the sinner, in other words, God is not at work chastising them because he's given them no revelation on which they can act. They have sin, and there is a consequence for sin upon their judgment day. I'm not taking anything away from that. But that's how it is that the writer of Hebrews can say that if you are not disciplined by God, you would be an illegitimate child. Discipline is the mark of being a child of God. Conversely, the absence of discipline is what we would expect if we're not a child of God. Up to this moment, Hagar has not been called into that relationship. She has no accountability in those terms, in the sense of discipline. But Abram and Sarai, they are accountable, and this now becomes an opportunity for God to turn their sin back against them and bring some consequences in the form of Hagar and Ishmael in the home. And then later, when God sets Hagar and Ishmael out of the home, then the penalty falls on Abram at that point, the loss and the sorrow of losing the child that he desperately wanted to hold on to. Verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. And behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar's first response here, once God reveals himself, makes clear his intent and purposes, is to do what? to declare that this angel is actually God himself. This is a statement of faith similar to the one Paul makes on the road to Damascus. Do you see some parallels? In both cases, there's a traveler who's arrested in mid-flight on a desert road by the Lord who appears to correct the person's sinful direction. And in both cases, the appearance results in a changed life, one that begins following the Lord's leading and receives the Lord's blessing. Therefore, in this moment, Hagar turns from being a pagan, Gentile, unbelieving slave from Egypt into being a woman who knows the living God 
and has received his blessing and promises and follows now in obedience to him. She has a son who is destined to torment Israel by God's plan. But she herself has been called to becoming a child of God. And what led God to bring Hagar into the family, what caused him to give her this opportunity to become now a part of the family of God by faith? Her association with Abram, the man who actually received God's promises. That association became her opportunity into the heavenly realm. And in response to that call, she will now return to Abram. She's going to submit as God asks her to do. She may still be a slave of Abram, but she knows who her true master is. And she's following that master now, rather than running from her earthly one. This is such a beautiful picture. I want you to see a picture that's just been formed out of the story of Hagar. It's a picture of our relationship with Christ. We too were arrested at some point in our past. We were on a path. We were in our normal course of earthly sinful life. And God somehow, through some manner, intervened in our life and arrested us, stopped us mid-flight, as it were, from God, running from God. And he spoke to our hearts somehow. Some of us heard it in an altar call from a pastor in a church. Some of us may have heard it in a Bible study group in college. Some of us may have heard a pastor on TV. Somebody may have stuck a track in our hands as we were walking down the street. I don't know. Maybe you were taught by your parents as a young child and you had the benefit of a life of faith. In any of those cases, you were stopped mid-walk somewhere in your life and God stepped in and said, I am the God you must serve. And we believed. We encountered the Lord. And by that encounter... We came to an understanding we had previously lacked. And by that understanding, we now were in a position to lead a life of obedience to what we now know. And we are receiving in that life of obedience the blessings by association. Like Hagar, we're receiving some of those promises now. We're receiving some of those blessings now, not because God has turned and said to us, I also make this covenant with you, but rather because he made a covenant with a man, Abram, and he is saying to the world now, because I said I would bless the world through Abram, I'm including you in these promises that I made to Abram. You are being grafted in, as Paul says in Romans. We are grafted into those promises, and so we share in those blessings. Hagar is the first Gentile brought into the family of God by an association with the Hebrew people. Let's look to her as our example as we turn and walk in obedience today. Dear Father, the lessons of Scripture come both in the depth and the breadth of your word. The connections from Genesis to Revelation are vast and we never hope to understand them completely, though we seek them. But the depth, Father, of your word, even just a few verses out of one chapter, can also be so awesome, Father, we're not sure where to take them and how to use them in our life. But the lessons, Father, are clear when you listen through our heart to when we listen to the Spirit. We hear, Father, that we are to obey. We hear, Father, that we are to submit to authority. We hear, Father, many little details out of the life of Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And you speak those to us. And I ask, Father, that as we contemplate what we've learned this morning, that there be whatever it is that you care most about in our life, that would remain on our hearts and our minds as we leave today. Knowing that you are a God who is faithful. A God that has made promises that not even you can change. And nor would you. And we ask, Father, that we would be obedient. Not to earn what we could not earn. But to glorify the name who has given us everything. Let us be ambassadors as Christ was for you. Let us be 
men and women who obey as Hagar did in response to your call. And I ask, Father, that these things we would do would bring others to ask questions concerning our faith, our Lord, and perhaps even our church family, and that these questions would be opportunities, Father, for us to grow the kingdom, to glorify your name, and if it be your will, to add to our numbers here at Oak Hill. But in all we do, Father, it's so that we may grow in strength and obedience and become better servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.